Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Michael Longley. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Thank you. It's just, it's so amazing to be in Belfast. Um, we're, we're so delighted to be here um, with Corimila and Padraig, who's been a friend of the show, um, who's been actually on the show, and I will interview him again while I'm here, and, um, and a friend of the show in many ways. And uh, to be at the MAC interviewing Michael Longley is a great honor. And I'm pretty daunted to interview you here in your city. Um, I th- I think I should say, just by way of introduction, that I I am going to be introducing you to a largely American audience, and so I may go over some ground that will be very familiar to people here, and there may be some ground we don't we don't tread on because we can't do it justice because of the complexity of it, the the deep. Um, history of this place. One thing I was really aware of as we were preparing to come here, and I was preparing to speak with you, is that um, this is a place that in recent memory has moved away from sectarianism, Mm -hmm. however humanly and fitfully that happens. Uh, And we're at this moment where it feels like much of the rest of the world is drawing towards sectarianism. So I may be asking different kinds of questions than I would have asked even a few months ago, seeking a different kind of wisdom. Um, I believe that, that, that some of what you know here, um, the rest of us need to know. And a piece of that uh, is the importance of letting the voices of poets rise in the midst of tumult and be part of our way of finding our way um, back to a, the possibility of lived peace and finding out what that can mean. So thank you so much for, for being here, for, for accepting this invitation. My, my wife used to say um, that she hoped Northern Ireland would become like the rest of the world. And uh, she now points out that the rest of the world is becoming as Northern Ireland used to be. Yes. So uh, this place has uh, learned some very complicated mm-hmm. lessons. And uh, some of our uh, polit- po- politicians <coughs> make me believe in the possibility of redemption. Mm. And uh, compared with what Ulster was like or Belfast was like 10 years ago, the place is unrecognizable. And uh, I'm rather proud. It's very incomplete and very imperfect, but we're getting there. Mm. So I, um, I, I always begin my conversations, whoever I'm speaking with, um, whether they are a scientist or a theologian or a poet, um, by inquiring about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood. 
And that kind of takes us right into um, the dynamics here. And it's a question that I understand has a special intensity and layers of meaning for somebody who was born in a Protestant household of English parents in South Belfast. But how would you start to reflect on that, the religious or spiritual background of your childhood? Well, my mother and father were English, um, which means that I'm a, a, an Anglophile, <laughs> I'm, uh, unavoidably British. Uh, but um, I was born on Ireland, on, on an island called Ireland, mm -hmm. and I'm Irish, so I'm both those things. I'm both British and Irish. And um, that's what the Belfast Peace Agreement allowed me to be freely. My, my parents were lazy agnostics, and um, there was no, religion was not part of um, my, my daily life as a child. When I was about 16, I had a rush of blood to the head and I got confirmed <laughs> in the Anglican Church by mm -hmm. Bishop Elliot, I remember. <laughs> and uh, that was when I was about 16. <clears throat> but uh, that, that kind of commitment has gradually faded and um, I would call myself an agnostic. Mm. Uh, no, but you also called yourself a sentimental disbeliever. Uh, um, yes. Uh, I envy people who have faith. Mm. Um, I got, when my wife had a, a fellowship in Cambridge, um, I used to visit her, and I went across the road every day of the week to St. John's for Evensong. Mm. And uh, Anglican Evensong is a big part of my life culturally. Mm. Um, but in a way that's um, religion, I take the religion, I, I take the music and the words, <laughs> the marvelous uh, 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 Anglican prayer book. Mm. Um, uh, one of Cranmer's great gifts to the world. Um, I, that's what I take out of it. Um, when we turn east and say the creed, I'm afraid I don't believe a word of it. Mm. Well, but when I think of, um, of the spiritual background of one's childhood, I think there's more to that than religion. I see how, um, how much you have thought about and written about your, your father's time as a, I think you say, a boy soldier in the trenches of the Great War. And you've written that he, when you were growing up, he was he would scream in his sleep. He was yeah. he was having traumatic memories, and to me, that also feels like part of what would have um, colored your sense of of the world, its morality, its safety. Well, the mystery of of his survival. I mean, he joined up as a boy soldier in 1914, and he survived to the end of the war. Uh, where the survival rate was about three weeks at certain times. Mm. So that's, uh, that, that's a mystery to me, that he survived and that I'm here. Um, I do believe um, in, in the transcendental. You know? I believe that poetry and art without a transcendental element uh, doesn't, really, it doesn't really exist for me. Um, 
but I'm completely outside any notion of um, organized mm-hmm. religion. And it is slightly sentimental, as, as you quote me saying. I mean, once, in a, once every four or five years, I, am, uh, I take um, communion. I'm in church, and I remember in a beautiful Swedish town, Lund, mm. um, we went to this uh, Lutheran church, and it was a, a female pastor. And um, she, she was giving out uh, communion. And I said to my wife, I said, I'm going up. And I went up and I took, took communion. Um, and I looked deep into her eyes. And it was a deep experience. Mm. Um, whether it was religious or not, I don't know. And I don't really care. And then we had an, uh, a New Zealand poet called Flora Adcock staying with us, and she wanted, she's a believer, she wanted to go to our local church where I was baptized and confirmed St. John's Balloon on Ascension Day, and I took her there. Um, and she went up to take communion, and I went with her. And uh, I believe in the poetry of it, you know, and mm. the, the, the poetry of it. And... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in Jesus as a, as a revolutionary poet, hmm. um, as a proto-socialist, um, although don't tell Donald Trump that. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not sure Donald Trump is very interested in Jesus, come to think of no. it. <laughs> he hasn't run him down yet anyway, has he? <laughs> what? He hasn't run him down yet. No. No, he hasn't. He hasn't given him a name. No, no. But proto-socialist might. might yes. Well, I him. think the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, mm-hmm. are as good a system to live by as any mm-hmm. that I can think of, and mm-hmm. I love them. I love them. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think this is something you said. You've said that poetry is about all of the things that happen to people. Um, war is one of them. Did you say that? I always get nervous about quoting things people said to journalists. Does that sound like you? I don't mind you quoting that. that okay. really, I mean, you may quote some rubbish later on. <laughs> okay. Um, you call me out if I do. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, seems in, it seems to me, you know, you became, you became a sense, um, one of the people who people would call a, a po- one of the poets of the troubles. Um, and that was what was happening to people. Yes. Um, the the poets of my generation, you know, um, Heaney and Mahan and Simmons, uh, we were very cautious. Um, there was a there was kind of pressure. But during the first, Second World War, people said, "Where are the war poets?" Yeah. You know? Yeah. And a, a cry similar to that went up here, and uh, but we were very cautious. And uh, I mean, I, I believe that a bad poem's a, a big enough offence, but a, a bad poem that uh, that invades the lives of people who are in the community who are suffering, who have been bereaved or whatever, uh, is an impertinence. And uh, we were anxious to avoid being being impertinent. But uh, and I've written somewhere that uh, you know the, a poet is not like some super um, reporter. Um, right. That the, the raw material of experience has to settle 
to an imagine to an a depth, an imaginative depth, where it can then come out as as true art. And there was an awful lot of what we call um, troubles trash, mm. dreadful novels, mm. and uh, execrable poems. And um, we we avoided that. My 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 friends uh, and I like to think I. Um, avoided that, and um, the poems eventually came. There's a lovely poem by Mahan called Afterlives. There's a beautiful poem by Heaney called um, Casualty. Mm. Um, and these are um, immortal poems that were born out of our, out of our conflict. And um, I remember in 94, um, there were rumours that there was going to be an IRA ceasefire. And um, <clears throat> I was reading the Iliad, which is the greatest poem about war hmm. and death and suffering. Uh, and there's this wonderful passage in it where the old king of Troy, Priam, uh, goes to the tent, plucks up courage, goes to the tent of Achilles to beg for the body of Hector, his son, whom Achilles has kills and Achilles is mutilating the body, drag, dragging him after his chariot um, and uh, Priam visits um, Achilles and uh, begs for the body of, of, of Hector and um, it for me is the soul of this great work of art, the, great, the first great and probably still the greatest poem in European literature. And um, I thought, wouldn't it be marvelous? This was August 94. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could compress this quite long episode into something like a sonnet mm -hmm. and make my own contribution to the um, peace process, as we called it? And uh, uh, this poem emerged. It's probably my best-known poem. Uh, ceasefire, so, right? Should I read it? Yes, please do. Um, I, I, I meant to say, we will read some poetry. You will read some poetry. And I, I brought some, but I also asked Michael to bring um, some poetry, and we'll see how we'll do that uh, as spontaneously as feels good. <clears throat> ceasefire. Put in mind of his own father and moved to tears. Achilles took him by the hand and pushed the old king gently away. But Priam curled up at his feet and wept with him until their sadness filled the building. Taking Hector's corpse into his own hands, Achilles made sure it was washed and for the old king's sake, laid out in uniform, ready for Priam to carry, wrapped like a present, home to Troy at daybreak. When they had eaten together, it pleased them both to stare at each other's beauty as lovers might. Achilles built like a god, Priam good-looking still and full of conversation who earlier had sighed, I get down on my knees and do what must be done and kiss 
Achilles' hand, the killer of my son. Now, that appeared then in the Irish Times, um, uh, the week of the ceasefire. Hmm. And I was walking down the Lisburn Road and um, a man came up to me and he said, I really admired, he called it my Achilles poem. Hmm. He said, I really admired your Achilles poem, but I'm not ready for it. Hmm. Uh, my son was the victim earlier this year of a punishment beating. I'm not ready to forgive. And I wondered to myself, was the, this poem of mine the premature? I mean, I... What, was it what? Premature. Uh-huh. Um, when, when I wrote it, uh, uh, there was a wonderful guy in Enniskillen called um, Gordon Wilson. He was a draper. And he was blown up uh, beside his daughter, the Enniskillen atrocity, on Remembrance Day. And a couple of days later, with his arm in a sling and plaster in his face, uh, he said to the television cameras that he forgave the killers of his daughter. Mm. Didn't even call them murderers. And um, I had his face in my mind for Priam when I wrote mm. that poem. But I thought, and there were people from Meniscalin who said they weren't ready either, um, that not everybody could behave with the extraordinary, almost superhuman magnanimity of Gordon Wilson. And I thought perhaps my poem might have been premature um, that it might have been too symmetrical and neat and tidy. So I wrote a, a kind of awkward, gauche corollary to Ceasefire. And um, I'll, I'll read that one. Is, is that... Um, it's about the Lisburn Road. Ice Cream Man? No, no, that's no, another one. That was another. So what's this one? Uh, this one, this is... Um, about the Lisburn Road, which, as you don't know, but I will insist is the center of the universe. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I, I wonder, you, you've said it's a very particular arter, exposed artery of Belfast. Yes. So just say a little bit of that about what, for you, um, Lisburn Road uh, well, it's represents. Where, it's, it's where the, my, I do my shopping. And uh, it used to, less so now, a lot of it has been gentrified. But in my boyhood, um, on the, as you're coming from the centre of Belfast up the Lisburn Road towards Lisburn, on the right-hand side was working class, uh, two up and two down houses. And then on the left-hand side, much more prosperous, the rhododendron gardens and, and uh, dentists and solicitors and people like that. So in a way... The, the, the whole class mix mm -hmm. uh, or confusion was symbolized by the Lisbon. And that, that juxtaposition is, is unusual. That one? That juxtaposition. That juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Belfast is full of these strange juxtapositions. In that mm -hmm. case, 
class, but in other parts of Belfast, um, in what are called interface areas, uh, we have Catholic zones mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Protestant zones, ghettos almost. You know? mm-hmm. um, that's all part of the the complication that you referred to referred to earlier. But um, this is all of these people. Mm. And it's really my message to the world, you know, um, that it's in the first line, that, um, in the first couple of lines, who was it who suggested that the opposite of war is not so much peace as civilization? He knew our assassinated Catholic greengrocer who died at Christmas in the arms of our Methodist minister and our ice cream man whose continuing requiem is the 21 flavours children have by heart. Our cobbler mends shoes for everybody. Our butcher blends into his best sausages, leeks, garlic, honey. Our corner shops sells everything from bread to kindling. Who can bring peace to people who are not civilized. All of these people, alive or dead, are civilized. It seems to me that um, that the distinctive place that you carved out for, for a poetic voice, um, an artistic voice, was this quiet, in, in the midst of... Um, of this atrocity was this quiet, insistent, insistence on celebrating normalcy mm-hmm. and noting normalcy and the persistence of human activities and life in all its aspects, including the garlic, yeah. right? The, yeah. the enlivening details that remained. Well, um, have you read any... Um, um, Concentration camp literature, you know, mm. uh, mm-hmm. the great, the greatest book of the last century for me is Primo Levi, mm. and in that kind of nightmare, what kept people sane was thinking of the ordinary things back home. Um, what made things slightly less nightmarish would be securing a toothbrush, you know, or women's um, things for sanitary purposes mm-hmm. um, and sanity itself depends on these banal commonplace little things there's no doubt about that mm-hmm. um, would, I, I think the ice cream man is another beloved poem of yours and would you read that one yes um, which it, it, to, the, to that point that you just made I, also um, Actually, I have it in here if you... Do you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, I've got it here. It's okay. Um, this was a man called Seymour, and um, he was murdered on the Lisburn Road. And uh, I had um, been botanizing um, in a beautiful part of County Mayo, looking for wild orchids. And as a little exercise, 
I'd put in a little green notebook in my pocket all the flowers I'd seen in one day. Mm. And I came back, and this awful thing had happened, and my younger daughter, uh, who was a regular customer and knew all the ice cream flavors by heart, um, she said, um, told me the news, and that she had used her pocket money to buy a bunch of carnations to lay, <coughs> lay on the pavement outside. Mm. And what I did, I almost sleepwalked into this poem. Mm. I made a kind of pattern of the flower names in my book, and I made a kind of a, a metaphorical wreath of the flower names, and the poems addressed to, to um, Sarah, my daughter. The Ice Cream Man. Rum and raisin, vanilla, butterscotch, walnut, peach. You would rhyme off the flavors. That was before they murdered the ice cream man on the Lisburn Road, and you bought carnations to lay outside his shop. I named for you all the wild flowers of the burren I had seen in one day. Thyme, valerian, loosestrife, meadowsweet, twayblade, crowfoot, ling, angelica, herb robert, marjoram, cow parsley, sundew, vetch, mountain avens, wood sage, ragged robin, stitchwort, yarrow, ladies' bed straw, bindweed, bog pimpernel. And that list is supposed to go on forever, really, you know. If you like, that's a kind of a prayer. Mm. That's an agnostic's prayer. Uh, now, I just, if I can find it, uh, I got this wonderful letter when this, this uh, poem appeared. Um, is that from the mother? From yes. Yes, that I, you, yes, please, that I, you, that you, I, I read that, um, that you, she wrote to you. The mother of the ice cream man. Yes. Um, it says, Dear Mr. Longley, my daughter bought your book, Gorse Fires, for me after hearing you on the radio. Your verse on the ice cream man was clear to us who you were writing about. But I do appreciate very much that someone outside our family circle remembered my son John. The fact that there were 21 flavors of ice cream in the shop and you wrote, wrote 21 flowers was coincidental. I do bless you for your kind thoughts and may God bless you sincerely, the ice cream man's mother, Rosetta Larmer. Mm. Well, I'm very proud of that letter. Yeah. What, what does that mean to you, that letter? What it... Everything, really. Mm means like all the good reviews I've ever had in my life rolled into one, <laughs> one letter mm. by a woman who probably wasn't a great poetry reader. And there's something, um, I mean, you used the word transcendence a little while ago. And there's, I wonder, I wonder if wonder, a sense of wonder is connected to that. I mean... The, the, the flowers that grow so freely are so ordinary, but 
so beautiful and so and the, even the language right then their names oh. are so lyrical yeah. it's almost like each of their names is a poem yeah well that is all a transcendental transcendental experience mm -hmm. uh, for me um my heart stops when i discover uh, an orchid mm -hmm. uh I nearly crashed the cars driving with my wife to Mayo uh, a few weeks ago, and there was a huge orchid. <laughs> I said, oh, look, you're supposed to keep your eye on the road. Uh, well, I, and I'm, I'm in danger. I'm a danger as a, as a motorized botanist. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then when uh, I hear a, a bird sing, you know, mm. it goes through me like an electric shock. And these are the things that matter to me. And um, uh, I, would call, I would call that transcendental. Mm -hmm. But on the troubles, I wrote a very angry little squib a few weeks, a, few month, a couple of months ago, which is called The Troubles. It's only... It's only about five lines long. I, good. I, wrote, I, I, I was hoping you would read that one. Yeah. The Troubles. I hate the title. I hate the word Troubles. Uh, I didn't go to the Troubles uh, exhibition at the Elster Museum uh, because I didn't think it was an exhibit, you know. I didn't think the Troubles were over while we have so many people who are sorrowing hmm. and are w damaged physically, uh, I thought it was a deeply presumptuous thing hmm. uh, to have a kind of exhibition where we can all, uh, to attract visitors. So was so, this poem a response to your, uh, to your reaction uh, to the partly, exhibition? Partly a response to, to that, yeah, it's, quite, it's very short, mm -hmm. the troubles. Think of the children behind the coffins, look sorrow in the face, call those 30 years the years of disgrace. And I do finally think it was all pointless, hmm. I'm afraid. And uh, Sinn Féin are doing what the IRA were asked to do 40 years ago, you know. And, uh, we have got our peace process. Um, I think the unionists are too stupid uh, to realize that they won, and uh, Sinn Féin are too clever to admit that they lost. <laughs> uh, this is where you've lost all the Americans who might be listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, anyway. Um, I wonder if we could, I want to shift a little bit. <clears throat> I listened to something you did for Radio 3 a few years ago, where they asked poets to write a, their own version of Rilke's letter to a young poet. Oh, yeah. You remember that? I do, yes. Uh, it was lovely. I think you addressed yours, I think it was Dear Allison. Allison, yes. <laughs> I wanted a nice middle class Northern Irish okay. name. See, I, I didn't get that nuance. Um, you, so Rilke, in this line which you quoted to Alison, which I 
quote all the time. You know, Rilke wrote about love, that love is the utmost, the ultimate trial and test, the work for which all other work is just preparation. And, um, and you've said that love poetry is at the heart of the enterprise, but when you say that, you're taking love out of a little box of romance. I mean, that's in there, I think. Yeah. But you say you're, you're, you love poetry about all of the loves of our lives. That's love right. in all its forms. Yeah, I mean, I do believe that if poetry was a wheel, the hub, the hub of the wheel is love poetry. Mm-hmm. But then the, branching out like spokes are the other affections and um, obligations and responsibilities and loves. Mm-hmm. Um, like um, friendship and uh, loving your country, loving nature, um, and so on. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think even in a couple of the poems you've read, The Ice Cream Man or All Those People, the, there's a love of, of the, that particular humanity and of this ordinary beauty that's growing around us all the time. Yes. There's a line by John Clare that I adore. I love John Clare. I revere him. Um, uh, poets love nature and themselves are love. Mm. And I believe that with all my heart, really. Mm-hmm. And um, part of part of writing is, is adoration. Is, is, it's a kind... For me... Celebrating um, the wildflowers or the birds is like a kind of worship. Yeah. And I'm I'm so intrigued to to put that together with this kind of poetry speaking to um, you know the troubles. Right, but that's that is also this gentle um, insistence in your work. I don't think it's an agenda, right? No, it's I have an no effect, agenda. Right? I, I, I stagger around. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm like a blue bottle bumping into walls. <laughs> and uh, I had a decade when I wrote hardly anything in my forties, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, and I thought I was finished. And um, lo and behold, I started to write again. Um, and uh, I mean, I have said that where poems come from, I have no idea. And if I have a plan, if I think, well, I'd love to write a poem about that, and I do a bit of homework on the subject, it doesn't work at all. I've got to be taken by surprise. Mm. And if I'm not surprised, nobody else is going to be surprised. Um, and I, I had a um, this professorship. I was the Ireland professor of poetry, which sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's the equivalent of the poet laureate. Is that is that right, Padraig? It's a bit is like that? that, yes. yes. I, I wanted to be promoted to the world, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the world poet, um, and um, the the thing about it was, um, you know, meeting meeting the young people, I really loved that, and having students. And they used to ask me about my, my schedule. Do you, what do you call it, schedule or schedule? 
schedule. Schedule, yes. Yeah, and I used to say, well, I don't write anything for 10 years. <laughs> True. And then all of a sudden I write three poems in a day. <laughs> also true. So that's it, you see. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can't... Uh, I don't really know where it comes from. And uh, wasn't it Jesus who said, if your left hand knows what your right hand uh, does? I think something like that. Uh, it might be the other way around, right and left. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Jesus. Uh, they cut it off. And I think that's, that's very good. And I think one can be too self-conscious. Mm -hmm. um, I think art and poetry are, require a certain insouciance. Mm. Um, otherwise, you'd get knotted. And um, I think uh, it's very important. You can take your poems seriously, but you mustn't take yourself seriously. I'm certain of that. And uh, that self-importance engraves its own headstone. Right. And no names, no pactrol. I never can think of I think of you had that in your letter to a young poet as well. Yeah, that's That advice. Right. I also did, I did, did I quote my dear friend, old friend, was a wonderful, grumpy man, uh, John Hewitt. Uh, I lo loved him dearly, but he said this wonderful thing <laughs> to me once. Uh, somebody was complaining with an earshot of being under-recognized, and John turned to me and he says, he says, if you write poetry, it's your own fault. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> and I believe that too. Well, well I, know what, I know what you did. You said, um, Rilke said, only write poetry if you must, right? Yes. If you can't not, if you only write if you can't not write poetry. And you said, you said that that is a more winsome and yeah. practical. Sorry? You, you said that that, that that line, that if you write poetry, it's your own fault. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Isn't it? That's is, right. Yeah. I know nothing more exciting than writing a poem. Mm. And all of that 10 years, I half hoped that I would write another poem. And I did try, but they were all fakes, you know. If you have quite a lot of technique, which now, after 60 years scribbling, I have, it's too easy to produce forgeries. And there are books upon books full of forgeries. Um, so it's important. I, I do believe that, you know, if you don't have anything to say, Say nothing. And that silence is part of the enterprise. Mm -hmm. And silence is sacred too. Right. You know, not to. Um, so um, I've been writing, scribbling away. I wrote a poem today. Did you? Yeah. I was going to sit down and have think about myself for you. I said, you know, <laughs> I was going to... Uh, but try and uh, you know put on a good show for Krista. <laughs> uh, but instead of that, you'd be glad to hear I wrote a poem. Did you bring it with you? Yes. Could, would you read it to us? Yes, if I can find it in this. Um, I may not be able to find it. Um, <laughs> I probably can't find it. Okay. What? A, imagine what a build-up that was, and I can't find the bloody <laughs> poem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
it was it was from the uh, it was from Homer. It was from the uh, the Odyssey. But we can put it on hold, can't we? All right. Yes, we can. So, I mean, so you're, you're, you, I, I just, I'll refer to this one more time, but the, your letter to a young poet, you said that your, your two favorite definitions of poet are the Scot, Scots word, macher, or maker, mm. and Horace's phrase, priest of the muses. And you've been getting into that. And you, I mean, you said that, um, that, there, that you're, you're talking about this, this magic, this mystery that made poets... Shamans in other cultures. Yes, that's you're, right. You're aware of that. I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you've also spoken of the mystery of um, form. You prefer yes. the word shape. Yeah. Just talk a little bit about that. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. Oh yeah, I remember our great we had a, a great um, professor of Greek at Trinity, where I read classics. Stanford, W.B. Stanford, very f- formidable man. And we were doing Aristotle's Poetics. And he said, next week I want to... He called us ladies and gentlemen. The first and last time I were ever called that, you know, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. He said, um, ladies and gentlemen, I want you next week to bring your own definition of poetry. And mine was, if prose is a river, poetry is a fountain. In other words, poetry uses language in a way that's free-flowing and at the same time shapely. And I do like the word shape. Mm. And um, I mean, there are much looser uh, utterances, say, that I admire, you know, like like Walt Whitman, who seems to be a truly great poet. Um, But I I would love to be able to write like that, but I can't. I am a sucker for this. It's extraordinary. You start to write, and the first group of lines is a quatrain. And you you haven't planned that. And then the next group of lines is a quatrain. And say, ceasefire. Hmm. Uh, that began because the episode begins with, with um, uh, Priam hugging the knees in supplication of Achilles. I, I put that at the end, which was a rhyming couplet. I get down on my knees and do what must be done and kiss Achilles' hand, the killer of my son. And I remember thinking, if I can extract from this episode four quatrains, I have a sonnet. And that's, <laughs> I solved the whole problem by thinking in terms I worked out what I needed to say I worked out what I felt by trying to write a sonnet right so the shape even formed the substance yes the in poetry the music and the meaning are inseparable that's the that's the mysterious thing mm-hmm. um, there's a beautiful thing there's a a poet I loved meeting in New York called Stanley Kunitz. And he was 100 when I went to see him. Beautiful old man. And um, he wrote in the preface to his collected poems, which I'd recommend to anyone, that form um, was a way of conserving energy. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? Mm. He said... The energy soon leaks out of an ill-made 
work of art. He's absolutely right. So that's what form does. I mean, it, um, it's you can't have an immortal poem without f formal, formal precision and um, kind of happiness of form. I don't know. I, I can't quite. I can't quite. Exp but it's a way of conserving form. And I remember talking to Heaney about this, and um, I said, you know, when you've uh, quatrains have declared themselves, that quat the poem has said, I'm going to be in quatrains, so you obey that. And I said, and when you have six, it's magic, isn't it? <laughs> six fours, 24, isn't that magic? And he said, yes, yeah, sure is. Sure is. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I would love to write, uh, I mean, among the, the great poems for me are D.H. Lawrence's uh, free verse. Um, I would love to write free verse. Do you know an American poet, Theodore Redke? Mm, I know the name. I don't know his poetry. Oh, mm. what a, I'm, I envy you discovering Theodore Redke <laughs> right. for the first time. And he wrote these, towards the end of his life, these great paragraph, Sam-like poems. And uh, I would quite like to write like that. But I have joked, you know, when, when the buzz comes, you get a kind of a buzz round about that bull bit there. And he goes, <laughs> you know, no poems on it. Bzzz, and, bzzz, and a poem's on its way. And uh, you... Um, so what was I talking about? <laughs> You're talking about the mystical act of writing poetry. Yes. Uh, anyway, it's extraordinary. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, I've I just lost completely. This is yeah. what's on you call in America, senior moment. <laughs> I, want, I want to ask you also about um, the, the mystery of, of place. And so... Carrick's Kiwan is a cottage in County Mayo that you and your wife and family have gone back to it, I believe, for yeah. over many years. And you said something wonderful about, uh, which is also kind of countercultural, at least in America, the, the beauty of going back to the same place over and over again. Yes. That you don't stop, you, that you notice more and more. It's not that you exhaust a place, that you go more, more deeply into it. Yes, it's uh, inexhaustible. Mind you, it is very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very remote. And we've been going there since 1970. And we carried our children through the river and through the channel. And now they come back. It was such a compliment to my wife and me that the children want to spend time with us. And they come back. And they now bring their children, our grandchildren, on their shoulders through mm -hmm. this really quite tough... Uh, uh, terrain and um, every every time I leave I think well there can be no more Korgsky one poems I've exhausted it but there always are poems mm -hmm. and the place is inexhaustible and um, we discovered um, eight signets on, on the lake uh, I saw a kestrel um, I haven't seen a, an otter for about four or five years, but my son-in-law and daughter, they saw an otter. 
and uh, I mean these are these are 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 um, things that bring out a devout side of me, and mm. um, uh, the, the 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 place. I mean, you know this, the phrase, um, uh, travel broadens the mind. Mm. We do quite a bit of traveling. But I think it also shallows the line, the, 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 the mind, mm. uh, that going back to the same place in, in a devoted way and in a curious way um, is a huge part of my life. And I'll be going there even when they have to push me in a wheelchair. <laughs> uh, Through that rough terrain. Yeah, and I'll be like, um, like uh, Stanley Kunitz, <laughs> who celebrated his 100th birthday by publishing a book. <laughs> yeah. um, you wrote uh, one poem that I pulled out was um, Remembering... Karakskuan, do you have that one? Or I can, it's, um, yeah. I think it's in here. That's about it. Okay, we'll see who gets to it first. Yes. Um, I see, I don't know my way around this book. He said that's not true at all, by the way. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. <laughs> um, yeah, this was a very special day when the children were young. And I'm remembering that day in Belfast, um, thinking of the details. <clears throat> and this is a hymn, if you like. Remembering Korigsgiwan. A wintry night, the hearth inhales, and the chimney becomes a windpipe, fluffy with soot and thistledown, a voice box recalling animals. The leveret come of age, snipe at an angle, then the porpoise's demonstration of meaningless smiles. Home is a hollow between the waves, a clump of nettles, feathery winds, and memory no longer than a day when the animals come back to me from the townland of Corrigskiwan from a page lit by the Milky Way. <laughs> you like that one? I do. Yeah. You, um, you said once to, uh, in another interview, you said, um, I don't go to Karakskiwan for escapist reasons. I want the beauty, the psychedelic wildflowers, the call of the wild birds. I want all of that shimmering beauty to illuminate the northern darkness. We have peace of a kind, but no cultural resolution. The tensions which produce the troubles are still there. It is important for me to see beautiful Karikskiwan as part of the same island as Belfast. Yeah. Well, I can't improve on that, Krista. <laughs> <laughs> I just... Um, I I just I want to keep um, shining a light on this gentle um, way that your poetry speaks indirectly but very directly to some which speaks with 
with beauty and with normalcy, um, with ordinary things, with the liveliness of ordinary things, to also what is hardest and most broken. Yes. Um, I have very complicated feelings about this. Um, I, I don't altogether like the idea that art can be a solace, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't, I, I hardly dislike the idea that the, the, the civic commotion here might be good for art. I right. think that's, right. you know, mm -hmm. I, I really dislike that. That's mm -hmm. on the same level as having an art, as a, a big room in the art gallery devoted to the, uh, to the, in the museum, devoted to the troubles. I don't like that. Right. Um, so what is it? But so what is that? What does poetry do? What does it work? If it's not solace. It, well, it's much more complicated than than solace. Mm -hmm. um, I like the um, the Aristotelian notion of um, catharsis, mm. um, and I think um, what art can do is to um, tune you up. I mean, you can, if you think of an out-of-tune violin mm -hmm. and tuning it up so that it's in tune, I think that's what art is and that's what art does. Mm -hmm. And um, good art, good poems, is making people more human, making them more intelligent, making them more sensitive and emotionally pure, than they might otherwise be. Uh, it's, it's, does that make sense to you? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, and one of the marvelous things about poetry is that it's useless. It is useless. <laughs> what use is poetry? People occasionally ask in the butcher shop, say. <laughs> they come up to me and they say, what use is poetry? Right. But, um, the, the answer is, no use. But it doesn't mean to say that it's without value. It's without use, but it is value. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is valuable. And um, it's the first thing, the first people that dictators try to get rid of mm -hmm. are the poets and the artists and the the novelists and the playwrights. I mean, look at, they burn their books. Mm -hmm. They're terrified of what poetry can do. It keeps imagination alive. It means that poetry encourages you to think for yourself and to disregard church and state. It does. And, uh, but that's not exactly used. That just means it's, 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 um, it's um, got value. And um, the, the image that I love the most, I've loved it for years and years, is the English critic Cyril Connolly. Mm -hmm. And he compared art, the arts, to a little gland in the body, like the pituitary gland, which is at the base of the spine. And it seems very small and unimportant, but when it's removed, the body dies. 
uh, Hitler thought he could remove the land, burn, burn the books, and then burn the people. And the Third Reich didn't last very long, mm -hmm. mercifully. I agree with you that there's something wrong about the idea that uh, you know human catastrophe is good for art. Yeah. On the other hand, it is true that in the midst of human catastrophe, uh, often, if not always, the poetic voice becomes more valued, more important. Yes, I think that's right. You know? I mean, I think it's not, it doesn't surprise me that, well, of course, this is a land that values poetry like no other. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that poets were such important voices during the Troubles. But, you know, I lived in um, East Germany in the time of the Berlin Wall. Yes. And poets were heroes, right? Mm -hmm. um, they couldn't get their work published, but you would sit around in these illegal rooms. Yes, that's right. And it's they were keeping people alive. Yeah, yes. That's a slightly more complicated thing, I think. Mm. Um, and uh, we all know about falling in love or being bereaved and how uh, <clears throat> we turn to poetry to write it ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. and at, at times of crisis. Um, but that's not the, the same thing as, it, as going to it for solace, you know, it's the same way as one might go to Christmas cards or birthday cards or, you know, the dreadful verses, which... Right, no, this is you know, much deeper. You know, this it, is, it much is a, much, a, a much deeper thing. Yes, it is, it is. And um, uh, I, I really... Uh, in the, the, the ashes outside the crematoria in Auschwitz, they discovered scraps of poems. Mm. And these are people who are going to their deaths, and they found time to write a poem. Well, I mean that says it all, doesn't yeah. it? It's just, it's a normal, it's a human active, normal human activity. I like that idea. It's a normal mm. human activity, and even in extremis, we'll turn to it. And uh, even if we're not writing poems ourselves, we will say poems to ourselves. Um, even yeah. sometimes not really not realizing their poems. Yes, perhaps, perhaps, um, yes. When you were speaking a minute ago about form, uh, the shape that words take, and how important that is, and how it also shapes what is said, the effect of what is said, uh, it also strikes me that that's. Um, and again, I don't want to be too linear, but it's modeling something like a care with words as a core value, as a, something at the essence of poetry. I mean, poetry would not exist without that. Care with words. That becomes such a critical um, well, I think that's one of the work for our society, right? Civic, civic One work. of the duties of the, art, of the writer, the poet, is... Um, to use words with precision. I think what poetry does is it uses words at their most precise and their most suggestive. Mm. And one word out of place, and the poem's dead. It's, it's shocking, but that's, that's true. 
and um, the poets, our poets, are custodians of of the language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that sounds very grandiose, but I do, I do believe it. You know, um, and it's time to quote somebody else. You know, let me quote. You know the the end of Mossborn Sunlight by Heaney, and here is love like a tinsmith's scoop, sunk past its gleam in the meal bin. How simple mm. and pure, mm. you know. I, I love that. And then I'll give you some American poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walt, uh, Wallace Stevens. Oh, oh, blessed rage for order, pale Ramon. The makers raged to order words of the sea. Words of the fragrant portals, dimly starred, and of ourselves and of our origins, in ghostlier demarcations, keener sounds. Now I haven't a clue what that's about. <laughs> I'm so glad. But uh, it's about everything, isn't it? Yeah. It's just, and I've had those lines by heart mm-hmm. since I was about twenty, and. When, when you hear him read him, you know, he's a great reader. And uh, he's the only poet I know of who was the vice president of a major insurance company. <laughs> not, ma- not many of them around. Yeah. There's, there's something in me that aches as we're having this conversation because one of the things that, is happen- that is so corrosive right now in American life is a crass, careless use of words. Yes. And we have poets. We have, we have amazing poets. They don't quite have the place in culture that they, that they do in Ireland. And, and, I, and I, I think that the civic space gets handed over completely to reporters, pundits, analysts. Um, yes, I know. Um, but... I, would, I was filled with joy when I listened to Michelle Obama. Yes. I thought that was just, that was poetry for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the alarming thing that happened in the, in the Brexit referendum, and with, especially with Obama, not with Obama, sorry, what's the other... Uh, with Trump, Donald Trump, yeah. was you can tell a lie now, and it's pointed out that it's a lie. You don't apologize. You just repeat it. Then you go on mm-hmm. repeating it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very worrying. I quite agree. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps the the poet should be more a- accurate. But you can't. Um, all a poet can do is is write good poems, and they may not they may not be current for a long time. My wife has devoted a lot of her time to a wonderful anglo welsh poet called Edward Thomas, who was killed at the Battle of Arras in nineteen seventeen and um, he said this wonderful thing which I live by, he said, anything, however small, may make a poem. Nothing, 
however great is certain to. So a good poem about, say, a daisy, think of Robert Burns, a daisy or a little field mouse. Theodore Redke's written a beautiful poem about a mouse. Um, And these poems may seem about little things, but they're so so good in their expression that they civilize us. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's programs like what your what your programs will, I'm sure, um, please people, and get them, get them to listen to, um, not this awful garbage, you know. I listen to the my my children <laughs> listen to stuff on the radio, you know, and I I think you know my God, um, is this. Miracle, which is radio. Yes. It is a miracle. And it's been turned into a sewer. Yeah. But anyway. Hmm. <laughs> um, I want, I'm going to, um, I'm going to do my radio thing. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being today in a special public conversation at the Mac Theater in Belfast with the poet Michael Longley. Um, I, in 1999, and I can't re- I think this may have been in The Guardian, you said, I'm anti-clerical full stop. I'm also an atheist or certainly an agnostic. However, I am interested in what it would mean to write religious poetry, particularly at the end of this god-awful century. <laughs> and I wonder what you meant by that, and I wonder what you think it would mean to write religious poetry at the beginning of this god-awful century. Well, <clears throat> by religious poetry, I really meant good poetry. That's, that's it. Um, I think a good poem is, in a mysterious, unmeasurable way, religious. Um, but I was also thinking in a slightly more specialized way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a wonderful Welsh poet called R.S. Thomas, and um, he was a vicar, he was a clergyman, and he, he wrote um, poems addressed to God, you know, I've met him a few times. I got on awfully well with him. Everyone was scared stiff of R.S. Thomas. I, <laughs> I could make him laugh, and he could make me laugh. And we joked away, um, and uh, he, I said it would appear that you've had been having an argument with God, Ronald. That's why he was called Ronald. <laughs> R- you can see why he called himself R.S. Thomas. Can't you? <laughs> uh, I said, you've had a, been having an argument with God and it would appear that God had lost. <laughs> uh, oh, he thought that was tremendously funny. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I mean, there are great religious poems, you know, like Jared Manley Hopkins, R.S. Thomas and so forth. But uh, for me, say the, the, um, the lines by Wallace Stevens that I quoted, the lines by Seamus that I quoted, mm-hmm. um, they're religious for me. They're religious poems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, you one one thing I, you you say that I, I would say never trust anyone who calls themselves a saint or a mystic, and you also say one does not call oneself a poet. Oh God, I hate it when people say that. <laughs> you know, you see people begin begin a sentence as a poet. I <laughs> it just isn't on, you know. Um, that's like saying, as a saint, I. It's right, like calling right. yourself a saint. Yeah. Which, I mean, if anyone called themselves a saint, you'd think they were loopy, you know? And I think anyone who calls themselves a poet or lays claim to that title, um, to be, at the very least, isn't a poet. Uh, because it's what you most want to be. And it's marvelous if other people call yourself a poet. Mm-hmm. But you can't say, as a poet, I. Mm-hmm. You're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is some, something, someone wrote this about you. And I believe you met him at Corimila, Richard Rankin Russell. Oh, yes. Um, I believe you were at a gathering at Corimila quite a while ago. I just want to read you what he wrote about you. Um, Longley's poetry, like Auden's before him, is religious in the best sense of the word, deriving from its Latin root, religare, meaning to bind fast or connect. Yeah, I think that's right. Do you take that? I'll accept that as a compliment, yes. <laughs> yeah. But I wouldn't dwell on it. That's the thing. My, my wife always says, you know, about compliments, she says, yeah, you accept them, but you don't inhale. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'd like to maybe, I'd love for you to read a little bit more poetry before we end, but I, I would ask you one question, which is a vast question. Um, so just how would you start to reflect on this? Um, through um, this life you've lived and, um, and the poetry that has been this magical part of what you've brought into the world, um, how, how do you think about wh- what it means to be human? What have you learned about that? Well, poets are no less or no more human than anyone else, you know. Um, for for me, it's quite an extraordinary gift to see something beautiful, say like a, a lark or a flower, um, and to write about it. Um, for me, no experience is complete, really, until I've written about it, hmm. and that's extraordinary um, and it's a way of having more than one life and um, you have I mean I've actually been in quite intelligent conversation with people and they don't realize that at the back of my head I'm finishing a poem <laughs> so I have this secret life that nobody knows about <laughs> except except my wife Mm-hmm. who's uh, the closest witness to what it's all about. Mm. 
and the best judge I know. Would you read a f few more poems? Yes, if you want me to. Um, I brought... I, hope they're I just love this. This is from your new... I think their newest collection, Angel Hill. Yes. Which maybe hasn't even been no, published no, it's yet. No, no, this is it here. Oh, that's, the, that's it. Sea Asters. Oh, yeah, I like I that one. This. Oh, I hear it. I printed it out, or if you already oh, have it. No. Good. Well, tell me why you like it. I, lo I loved it, too. Well, to begin with, it's short and compressed. <laughs> yes. And the sea asters, this beautiful purple, really humble flower, and um, this grows where my daughter lives on a, on a salt marsh. And um, this is just saying how, how magically wonderful it was to discover sea asters in this unlikely place beside a, a fawn's skeleton. <clears throat> sea asters. I have got to know the fawn's salt marsh skeleton, abstract vertebrae, and white ribs in a puddle jellyfish fill at spring tide. Ghost circles close to the sea asters, purple, golden-hearted, scruffy loveliness. <laughs> yeah. Have you another one there for me to read? I have. Um, well, let me, I want to ask okay. you, we talked about love poetry as something that is expansive about many kinds of love. Do you have a love poem that you, it's one of your poems that you think of as a love poem oh, in, that, I, uh, yeah. in that tradition? Can I, can I read an earlier one? Yes, yes. It's, it's you can six, read anything you want. You know, it's six quatrains. Okay, we can handle I, it. The Magic's 24. <laughs> uh, and it's also a kind of a love poem to this province. The lin it's called The Linen Industry, and um, it's a poem I'm proud of. And it's six quatrains, and um, it uses its, its resolving image is the bleach green. Now, in, when the linen was woven in the olden days, it was put out to bleach in the sun on a bleach green, so that at the height of summer. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge industry here in it Belfast. Was, yes. yes, yes. Perhaps it'll come back, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and it would appear that at the height of summer there'd been a fall of snow. And that's really this. Mm. <clears throat> the linen industry. <clears throat> Pulling up flax after the blue flowers have fallen and laying our handfuls in the peaty water to rot those grasses to the bone, or building stooks that recall the skirts of an invisible dancer. We become a part of the linen industry and follow its processes to the grubby town where fields are compacted into window boxes and there is little room among the big machines. But even in our attic under the skylight, we make love on a bleach green, the whole meadow draped with material turning white in the sun 
as though snow reluctant to melt were our attire. What's passion but a battering of stubborn stalks, then a gentle combing out of fibres like hair, and a weaving of these into christening robes, into garments for a marriage or funeral. Since it's like a bereavement once the labour's done, to find ourselves last workers in a dying trade, let flax be our matchmaker, our undertaker, the provider of sheets for whatever the bed. And be shy of your breasts in the presence of death. Say that you look more beautiful in linen, wearing white petticoats, the bow on your bodice, a butterfly attending the embroidered flowers. Do you have a poem uh, that you would call, that you would call a, a religious poem for the beginning of this century? I Which I will take your translation as a good poem for well, this century. Can I read a poem that I wrote just about a week ago? Mm. Um, it's not. It's about growing old. Um, and it's about Korigsky one. Mm. And I think growing old is important. You know, the, my favorite quote on growing old is Ubi Blake. He was a jazz pianist. And he was still playing away when he was 100. And he said, if I knew I was going to live so long, I'd have taken better care of myself. <laughs> so, this is about, about finding it harder to walk around this rough terrain, okay? Mm. And it's, anyway, I'll read it. But it's not, nothing I write is aimed as high I as, know, I know, as, as, I know. as you would suggest. Yes. Um, remember, anything, however small, may make a poem. Nothing, however great, is certain to. This is called Age. I've been writing about this townland for 50 years, watching on their hummock autumn ladies' dresses come and go, and after a decade underground, return in hundreds. I have counted the hoopers, and the jackdaws over Morrison's barn. Too close on the dirk to tractor tracks, the ringed plover's nest has kept me awake, and the otter that drowned in a needle trap. Salvaging snail shells and magpie feathers for fear of leaving particulars out, I make little space for philosophizing. I walk ever more slowly to gait and style. Poetry is shrinking almost to its own bones. I got the last line wrong. Can I go over it again? Hmm. 
I walk ever more slowly to gait and style. Poetry is shrinking almost to its bones. Hmm. I, um, I want to ask you to do one more. It's tiny. And to me, it's a wonderful example of, well, just what you just did, that juxtaposition of what is hard and extraordinary and beautiful and ordinary. And it's, I think this was about your father. Uh, you've written a lot about your father and yes, the war. Yes, indeed. And in, oh, where is it? He died when I was only 20. And the poems I've written are really a kind of a conversation so, with his ghost, you know. Was this, was this about the Great War? Which one? D.D. Ridge. Yes. Yes. Vimy Ridge, that's where Vimy the Canadians... Ridge. Okay. The Canadians suffered terribly. Um, and it's not about him, but it's about some so imagined Somebody soldier. Somebody there, yes. Vimy Ridge. From a forward observation post the day before he is killed, he writes to his wife, Between the terrific noise of the guns, I can hear two hedge sparrows making love. <laughs> Michael Longley, thank you so much. Thank you.